0: Chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple." Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation, while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. Do you have what it takes? That's a a recruitment question. Do you have what it takes? The interviewer wants to know if you have what it takes to do the job. They not only want to know if you uh, meet certain qualifications, but if you have the character that will make you an asset to them in fulfilling their mission. The best recruiters are the most honest about the position listing not only the benefits, but the challenges and the demands. Ernest Shackleton was such a recruiter. After the race to the South Pole ended in December 1911 with Amundsen's conquest, Shackleton turned his attention to crossing the Antarctic from sea to sea via the pole. To this end, he made preparations for what became the Imperial Transit Antarctic Expedition, 1914-1917. Disaster struck this expedition when its ship, the Endurance, became trapped in packed ice and was slowly crushed before the shore parties could be landed. The crew escaped by camping on the sea ice while it disintegrated, then by launching their lifeboats to reach Elephant Island, and ultimately South Georgia Island, a stormy ocean voyage in sub-zero temperatures of 830 miles, and Shackleton's most famous exploit. But prior to setting sail, it is said that he published this recruitment advertisement. a daring scheme. A small party was to cross Found the up. Antarctic continent for the first time. According to legend, Shackleton announced the expedition in a now-famous advertisement. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success, Ernest Shackleton. Thank you. Ready to sign up? No. Well, over 5,000 men came to sign up. From all walks of life, they responded to the air. That so often happens that the challenge, the adventure, even the danger resonated with something deep within men's hearts. We must realize, as Christians, as one writer states, the dangerous and wild adventure in following Christ is the way less traveled. Following Christ is a wild adventure full of risk, frustration, excitement, and setbacks. It is not an evening stroll in a planned community along a well-manicured path. Going his Father's way costs Jesus everything. It will cost you everything also. There will even be persecution, but the cost is so worth it. It may not be the results in Shackleton's idea of honor and recognition in case of success, but it will be infinitely more grand and awesome to hear the words of our king, well done, good and faithful servant. Today our scripture opens with another recruitment speech, this time given by Jesus. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He says, if anyone comes to me, And does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is telling it like it is with shocking transparency. Large crowds were following Jesus, some were looking for a miracle. Some were fascinated by those miracles. Others moved by his teaching. Still others just got caught up in the excitement, like following a parade. And it's to this mixed audience that Jesus gives this address. Jesus wants to be upfront about what being a disciple and following him is all about. While salvation is free, discipleship costs. And at first blush, this seems like a very hard saying. And when you come to a passage such as this, which seems to go against so much of the other teachings of Jesus, it's good to put it in context. And remember that these verses must be seen against the backdrop of the entire scriptures. For example, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. That's certainly not hating them. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. And in fact, the scriptures even command us, love your enemies. So What does Jesus mean by this saying, hate your mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and your own life? First, we should note that it's, it's linked back It's linked back to the parables we saw the last couple of weeks to the great banquet. Remember there, those who were invited guests gave excuses about coming. One bought land, another bought oxen, one was just married. In other words, they were putting earthly things and their relationship with those earthly things before their relationship with Christ. And this is why Jesus gets more intense about his calling here in the statement about hate. To understand this, we need to know what the word hate used in the Jewish culture meant. While it definitely means exactly what we know it to mean, it also has a different meaning on occasions in Scripture. The statement that Jesus is making here is called a comparative statement. He's comparing a comparative statement uses adjectives that highlight differences. So the use of hate here really means to love less than another. To love less than another. We find this usage in Genesis 29, 30 and 31, which reads in the King James, He went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So in these two verses, the first, verse 30, Leah, it says, was loved less by Jacob. But that's interpreted in verse 31, the next verse, as hated, loved less. Jesus would never actually say that we should hate our parents, our wife, or our children directly. He wants us to love them, and ourselves as well. They are a blessing to us. But what he does say here is that we should love him more, that he should have our primary allegiance. So if we are honest, it's still a hard saying. Many of those who followed Jesus at this point stopped following him when they heard the cost of being a disciple. As someone noted, it "Is one of the supreme handicaps of the church that in it there are so many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. What is a distant follower? It's one who wants the benefits without the cost. In fact, Jesus goes on to show us just how much of a cost is involved. And whatever do, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There's much misunderstanding about what carrying a cross is all about. Too often we apply that idea to any struggle you happen to be dealing with. You know, we apply the idea to uh, the job or health, uh, or your spouse, oh, you know, that husband of mine, that's my cross to bear, you know. Well, he may be difficult, but it's not your cross to bear. I don't know why I always pick on the guy. Maybe I should... (laughs) Millions of people wrestle with those type of problems in life but they're not bearing crosses. Randy Smith commented, toothaches and noisy neighbors and broken dishwashers are not crosses. The Bible would call these trials or thorns. Crosses are the pain and the shame and persecution we face for being a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. Willingness to carry your cross stems from the self-denial and is the ultimate test of your loyalty to follow Him. To Jesus' audience, to bear one's cross was a one-way trip to a horrific death. Hence, it is only as we follow in the steps of Christ are we truly cross-bearing. Cross-bearing is a particular kind of suffering that we suffer for Christ. Whenever we are disrespected at school or disadvantaged at work or disowned by our families because we take a strong stand for Christ or convert to Christ, we are bearing a cross for Christ. Whenever we are faced with spiritual hardships that come with ministry in the name of Christ, we are bearing his cross. Defining the course, Jesus goes on to give two illustrations. The first is about the tower. They start building a tower, but if you're run out of money, you cannot complete the job, you end up looking foolish. This reminds me of a, a modern-day situation. Maybe you've heard about it in the papers. Alaska's Ketchikan International Airport sits on Gravina Island, just offshore from the town of Ketchikan. The only access is by ferry. About 15 years ago, amidst a great deal of political debate and maneuvering, Alaska decided to build a bridge to the island. They spent $26 million of taxpayer money on the road from the town to where the bridge was going to go across the water. But due to political challenges and changes, the bridge was never built. So now they have this road they call Road to Nowhere. $26 million later, they have a road from town through the forest and it ends in the forest by the shore. There's no other roads coming in, no exits. It's just there. Think of the Seafood Oyster Bay Expressway, that if you take it all the way to the end, it ends abruptly, but there's many, many exits that you can get on and off. But if there were no exits on and off and it just ended, that would be the picture of this. And uh, the Conservative Heritage Foundation called that whole debacle a national embarrassment. The second illustration is of a king considering going to war with 10,000 men against 20,000 men. Against such overwhelming odds, it would be prudent and wise to count the cost and to make peace. And in both illustrations, Jesus teaches that one must consider their resources as well as their commitment to him as Lord, because as a disciple, Christ must be the priority. He says this in verse 33, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. A true disciple, like a, a true soldier, must be willing and ready to give up everything in the service of our King, for the soldier in service for his country, even one's life. It is true, over the e- history, God has called many believers to martyrdom but not all. He has blessed countless others with good things and success in service and life, such as us. But those true disciples are of such a heart, like the minute men of old, that at a moment's notice, they will be ready to respond and give all they have for King and his kingdom. Our Lord Jesus. In his famous devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers writes of this readiness to show complete allegiance to Christ. He writes Suppose God wants to teach you to say, I know how to be abased. Are you ready to be belittled, humbled, and to be offered up like that? Are you ready to be not so much as a drop in the bucket? To be so hopelessly insignificant that you are never thought of again in connection with the life you served? Are you willing to spend and be spent, not seeking to be ministered unto, but to minister? Careful what you pray for. Most of us will never be called to such severe circumstances. But as disciples, are we ready? and willing to respond to such a call at a moment's notice, any time, any day. That's the heart that Christ wants in his disciples, in his followers. He wants that faithfulness and our allegiance. I've been talking a lot about Eric Little and chariots of fire, but he also said this, as Christians, I challenge you, Have a great aim. Have a high standard. Make Jesus your ideal. Make him an ideal not merely to be admired, but also to be followed. If life is an adventure, then Christianity is the greatest journey. The stakes and rewards are both high and eternal. And our companion on this voyage is Christ himself. We do not have to walk around with long faces or beaten down hearts. The Lord has provided and blessed us with enough. Enough joy and blessing and purpose to make living exciting. And whatever adventure God has called you, He promises to be with you through it. His presence is all we need. As Moses discovered in Exodus 33, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send me with. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you the rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. And Hebrews 13 likewise states, God has said, never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And so Jesus' recruitment statement, like Shackleton's, is painfully honest. You love him above all else. We can take great comfort in the fact that Christ walks with us in this adventure of faith. To be a disciple of Christ is to have a desire for something more, a craving to be part of something bigger, greater, and more profound than perhaps just our nine-to-five jobs. It's part of the human fabric to want adventure why 5,000 men answered Shackleton's end and why countless millions answered Christ's call to be disciples. They want to be part of something bigger to see the kingdom advance. And in fact, as Second Peter 1, 3 and 4 indicates, we have been given everything we need for this journey. It reads, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By grace, we have been given all the necessary equipment to be disciples of Christ and live godly, Christ-like lives. But we must use the equipment. 1 Timothy 4, 7, train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The Greek word there, translated train uh, is gymnazo, where we get the English word gymnasium, a place for physical training and competition. But how can we train to be godly? Train by imitating Christ. He is our model and by obeying his teachings. As we've seen, it means making Christ and his service number one priority in our lives, in our, in our homes, before our kids. And just as the, those athletes who train for the Olympics must have that fire in their belly in order to make that daily commitment to train to watch their diet, to say no to family and distractions, and all with the, the goal of obtaining that, that gold medal. So the disciples of Christ must train daily. And God has ordained that the visible church is a gymnasium. It is here we are mentored and taught his word. It is here you can join others in prayer and find encouragement to keep moving in the right direction. It is here you can find support and help in times of crises. It is here you find like-minded believers who share the same values and who impress them upon their children. As Paul states in Ephesians 4, so Christ himself gave gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Yes, God's church is God's gymnasium. The question is do you have what it takes? Are you eager to hit the gym? looking forward to participate in what it has to offer in Sunday school and worship services, to hear the sermon, be involved in children's programs and adults' fellowship. It's here, and you can be strengthened in your journey out there. Church, a priority in your life. Where on the list of priorities does it sit? Or is it like those regular gyms where we all start off with the best of intentions and we forget where the gym is? So many things distract you, family obligations, sports, and just plain laziness, that church becomes a low priority. I remember when I first came to Christ, our schedules changed. And uh, our families were a little upset about the adjustments. It used to be Sunday, oh, come over for a Sunday dinner, you know, at, at noon or so. And uh, I said, well, we, Mom, we, we're not going to be able to get there that, just quite that early. We go to church now, and, uh, you know, we're going to get over there later on. You know, we could be there by two. <laughs> you know, she was sure I had joined some cult or something, and, you know. But guess what? After she got over a huffing and puffing, all right, they realized 2 o'clock works. And then we never heard of it again. But here's a simple test of one's true discipleship. Not getting your mother upset about dinner. Simple test of one's disciple. A disciple makes Disciples. Say it again, A disciple makes disciples. Jesus gave us that great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. That is the goal of discipleship, is reproduction to make other disciples. It's like the athlete winning the gold medal. When you lead someone to Christ and you disciple them, that's like winning the gold medal. A good disciple, like good salt, is it fulfills its purpose to flavor and preserve. So we answer, have you fulfilled your purpose? Have you led even one person to the Lord and then discipled them after? And if not, why not? To do so is the storing up for yourself of treasures in heaven. This is how Paul saw making disciples in 1 Thessalonians 2. For what is our joy, our hope, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Can you say that about someone that you have led to Christ? You are my glory and joy. Have you reproduced yourself? It was Paul's, his disciples were his crown, his joy. He used what God had given him in terms of skills and abilities to multiply believers, much as those who were given ten coins and then five coins and doubled them. And it's to all such disciples that do that that those precious words I mentioned before will be heard. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. I had this thought. Perhaps instead of the familiar God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life saying which is often misleading when it comes to discipleship. We should modify Shackleton's ad to weed out those who do not have what it takes. Perhaps it should read something like this. Disciples wanted for hazardous journey. Volunteers only. Bitter enemies Long months struggling against spiritual darkness, constant danger, casualties likely, mission's ultimate success without doubt, honor and recognition for those who persevere. Want to be a disciple? Do you have what it takes? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we indeed praise you and thank you for your word, and it's challenging today, Lord, it's humbling, and it it caused me to look inward, it causes us all to look inward, and to ask, do I have what it takes? Am I a disciple, or am I one who follows at a distance? Oh Lord, we repent if that's the case, draw us close to you. Lord, by the power of your spirit, give us opportunities. Help us, Lord, before we leave this world to make at least one disciple. For your honor and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.